Well, I've actually, uh, I have a little theory that there are really two kinds of people when it comes to the doctor. Those who go in all the time uh, or are, are big fans of regular checkups and preventative care and those who only go in if they're on like death's door. And you probably know who you are, right? But if you go in for a regular physical or maybe you take your kids for a well-child checkup, you go in and what does the doctor do? Takes your height, or there's a nurse there, t- height and weight, kind of measure your vital signs like your pulse and your blood pressure and other things like that. Maybe they do a blood draw and they look at the different levels in your blood. And the, the point in all of that is to determine am I healthy or is there something going on in my body that needs to be treated or it could get really, really bad. See, that's why we do well-child checkups. That's why we do physicals. It's a way to kind of go in and diagnose, am I healthy? Am I doing okay? But have you ever wondered, is there a spiritual version of that? Like, how am I doing spiritually? How would I get a checkup on those kinds of things? I I actually think 1 Peter does a really good job of giving us a spiritual checkup, so to speak. Uh, He... Peter writes this letter to Christians scattered around Turkey, some with a Jewish background, some with a Gentile background, and and encourages them in light of the persecution that they're experiencing, in light of the opposition, that they are God's chosen exiles, that they are chosen by God and that they are exiles here in this world, and that uh, they are to live lives driven by hope, rooted in the hope of eternity with Jesus and the inheritance that that is ours. They are to be... um, characterized by a sense of hopeful holiness, like that we take on the family traits of God. When God saves us, we begin to reflect him to a watching world, and, though, and even though much of that is in the future, we actually get to do some of that now, showing the watching world what God is like and taking on the family traits or his character, so to speak. But then the question becomes, how do I know if I'm holy? How do I know if I'm, if I'm doing some of those things? And I think our passage at the end of chapter 1 gives us kind of four check-in points or, or characteristics of, of those who are spiritually healthy. Here they are. First is a growing love for other Christians. We see that in verse 22 and 23. Second is an eternal perspective on life, uh, 23 to 25. Third is a, a hatred of our sin. And then lastly, a growing hunger for God's Word and His presence in our life. So I'll read through it and see if you can notice those things. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, it'll be on the screen. Uh, you can also follow along in your Bibles or tap there on your phones. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good." So growing love for other Christians, an eternal perspective on life, a hatred of our sin, and a growing hunger for God's Word and His presence. First, a growing love 
for the church. I love Jesus, but not the church. You ever said that? You ever heard somebody say that? For many years of my life, I would repeat that phrase thinking that I was being kind of cute and coy, but acknowledging the very real pain that sometimes Jesus' followers don't look all that much like him. I mean, I get it. The, the, the people of God certainly have their warts. There are those who maybe behave so badly that you legitimately question whether or not they actually know the Lord Jesus Christ. The family traits of being holy are, are maybe not all that high on their priority list, and so they make him look bad. And the reality is they may not actually love Jesus, but some of them actually do. They just got a bunch of things to work on. The idea that we can love Jesus while hating his people is an incredibly unbiblical notion. And what, what it does is if, when that attitude exists in our heart, it's like a, a corrosive cancer that's eating away at our spiritual health. Do you love one another? It's a simple and yet a profound question, and it's one of the markers of spiritual health, a growing love, not just for God, but for his people as well. Look at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Now I found in preaching through 1 Peter that Peter's grammar is challenging sometimes. Not because it's wrong, but because sometimes you just have to step back and say, what did you just say again? What's the main point? Because he has a main point, and then he usually surrounds it with all kinds of qualifiers. In fact, in this sentence, you have to get to the second or third line before you get what the main command or point is, which is this, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. He writes to them and he says, this is what characterizes the people of God is that there is a genuine love for one another and it comes from a, a place of pure heart. It's, it's genuine. You're not faking it. it it's, it's got a bit of passion to it. There's an earnestness, not, not getting around to it later. And he says, you do this because you have been born again and because your souls have been purified by obedience to the truth. Now, what, what does that mean? to have your soul purified by obedience to the truth. Like, that's a ton of church words strung together that we just kind of nod our head and we're like, what, what does that even mean? It means, I think, that we have believed the gospel message. We have responded to the truth of the good news. And part of that proper response is then obedience or conformity to that truth. This happens because, he says in verse 24 here, that we, or 23, we have been born again. And this is actually the second time in Peter's letter that he refers to the language of being born again. The first is back in verse 3 of chapter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so back there, we are born again to, to a hope, a living hope, and this happens through the resurrection. But now here in verse 23, we are told that we have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. So God's word creates life in us, just like Jesus' resurrection provides the grounds for our being born again 
before. Now, does this make any sense at all? See, this language of being born again is interesting, isn't it? It's, it's a metaphor that Jesus used with Nicodemus to try to describe what this new kingdom of God life is like. He says it is so radically different that it's like, like being born all over again, like living a, a completely different kind of life. You are new or you are alive to certain things that you weren't alive to before. Being born again is like grasping for human language to describe what happens in our hearts when we see and treasure and know Jesus and believe the gospel. So how do I know if I've been born again? You just know. Because everything's different. You're like, well, that sounds really vague and hard to measure. It it is. But if you've been born again, if you know God, if you have seen him and learned to treasure Jesus, if you believe the gospel, good news, and have a new heart with new desires and new longings and dreams, that is a work of God in you. It's like being born all over again. Now, here's the crazy part. You can actually grow up in church. You can learn all of the things that the Bible teaches and not be born again like that. And one of the ways that, that you, you know that might be you is if you, you hear about these doctrines of, of the Bible, you, you hear the good news and you're like, yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I kind of believe that. Versus you hear that and you're like, oh my goodness, everything's different. If that's true, everything changes. If that's true, then I am now reconciled to God and I'm reconciled to, to my fellow believers and we live out of this newness. I have a new power at work within me, new desires at work in my heart. It's like God cut out my dead heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. It's like God took out my blind eyes and gave me new eyes that can see and comprehend. And these are the exact things that were promised in the Old Testament that would come when Jesus came. And so here it says that we ought to love one another earnestly from the heart because we've been born again, since you have been born again. So really quick, are you growing in your heart of love for other believers? It's amazing how we can talk all of this language of trying to comprehend and understand it, and yet at the very core, the, the question or the truth is simple, isn't it? Do you love your brother's and sisters, do you love the people of God? Are you growing in your affection for them? That's what spiritually healthy people do. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Second, characteristic two is an eternal perspective. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So the word of God is the good news, the gospel that is preached to you. And then Peter quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 to 8, to emphasize a point of how this new birth is different than the previous birth. And he uses this to kind of compare and contrast uh, physical life with the eternal word of God. And he does so by using flowers or, or grasses as, a, as an example. Now, there's something truly breathtaking about flowers, isn't there? They're beautiful. They're vibrant. The colors, stunning, and yet they don't last, do they? No matter how beautiful they are, they, they always wither. 
and they die. They're temporary. See, what Peter is saying is what is true of grasses and flowers is true of our bodies as well. They, they break down. They, they get cancer. They stop working right. They die. Compared to God and His Word, they are so fleeting and temporary, but that's what makes the, the new birth so amazing. Like, I mean, we feel this, don't we? Like we're born and, and we age and we kind of grow up into maturity and our physical peak, and then it, it, it goes downhill. Like, it, I'm 42. It, it, it goes downhill. Like, I, I spent yesterday skiing at, at Spirit Mountain, and I feel it today. I didn't used to. My boys will go off these jumps and they land, and, and I used to do that. And now when I see that, I'm like, ooh, that would hurt the knees. I'm not sure my feet could handle that. I'm going to stay on the ground. Thank you very much. What happened? Well, my body is beginning to not be what it was. We feel that. And our first birth is like that. We are under the curse of sin. We, are, uh, we, we experience the frailty of the body. But the good news is that is actually temporary for the Christian but the new birth is so amazing because we have been born again of a, of a different kind of seed, we're told, an imperishable seed, one that isn't tainted by sin or under the curse. It is the seed of the living and abiding gospel, the Word of God, that like Isaiah said about the Word of God, is eternal and it lasts forever. The good news preached to us is that our new birth, this regenerating work that God is beginning in us now, is, etern is eternal. It'll, it'll go on. But we get to experience some of that now. That's, that's good news. Now, do you feel the tension of that? Like, like you're Christians, but you still feel the breakdown of things. You still experience some of the cravings and appetites of sin. You still feel the, the brokenness of that you're not what you want to be yet. And sometimes you live out of this new kingdom, and sometimes you don't. That's a tension that we're meant to lean into, but, but we're to lean in the direction of the newness and the, the new kingdom experience that we will experience for all eternity. And so what he says is, I, I get where you're at now, but, but God is doing something in us that will carry on for eternity, and it will get better and better and better. Have you ever been around people that are in their older kind of golden years that like their bodies have completely broken down, but you want to do nothing more than just hang out with them? Like the love that they exude and the, and the, the, the experience that they have with the Savior and the refinement that's taken place on the inner man or the inner woman. You just want to be with them. That's what it's talking about. See, the, their bodies are breaking down. The, the, the initial seed is, is perishable, but the, but the new birth is, is imperishable, and it will go on for all eternity. And so in light of that, do you allow that eternal perspective, that, that different grid of time, so to speak, to impact your day in and day out decisions, how you spend your money, whether or not you battle temptation, your approach to suffering, and whether it's meaningless or, or serving something greater. You should. You should ask, how does this decision not just impact me in 10 years, which is a sign of, I, th I think, worldly maturity, but how will this decision impact me in 100 years? Or a thousand years? Is this the thing that I'm going to look back on and say, that was a great trajectory to be on? Or will it be filled with tons and tons of regret? How we think about the future and eternity as Christians 
should be different. We should have an eternal perspective on things. And when we do, we bear the marks of spiritual health. Characteristic number three. So the first one is a growing love for our brothers and sisters, other Christians, the church. Second, a a growing or an understanding of eternity and having an eternal perspective on our life. Third is a growing hatred for your sin. Verse one of chapter two begins with so. That's a small little word, but it's a connecting word, meaning based on what I just said, I'm now going to apply it in a very specific way. So in light of the inheritance that we have and the, and the hopeful holiness that we're called to and the, and the eternal perspective and the growing love, so in light of all of those things, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Put off the sin that is so clinging to you. Hate the sin that exists because it destroys intimacy with God. And do you see how these things destroy relationship with each other? Malice is not just doing evil and wrong. It's thinking about it, plotting it, seeking to harm others. Deceit in hypocrisy is lying to yourself and lying to other people. It's being and saying things that aren't true. It destroys relationship. It doesn't adorn the gospel with good works, but rather the opposite pretends to be what we're not and makes the world. And I get it. Sometimes they are. And yet at the core of being a Christian, at the heart of the gospel message is an admission that I am not all that there is. I am not holy. I am not perfect. I I am a sinner before a holy God, and therefore I need a Savior. It's an incredible admission of guilt. And it's not one saying, I have my life all together, but rather, I'm a mess and I need a Savior. And his name is Jesus, and he's working on me. And so hypocrisy is when we claim to be something that we're not. But as Christians, we shouldn't. In fact, every time we come and and take communion, we're, we're, we're outing ourselves. Still need them. Sinner right here. Receiving God's mercy and grace. He goes on, envy. Envy is like jealousy, only worse. It, it longs for what you don't have and doesn't mind tearing others down in order to get it. See, envy is a zero-sum game with a winner and a loser rather than a winner and a winner. And slander is using our words to tear down others, usually for some gain relatively small in us. See, these things are incompatible with the new family traits of our Father. God is holy, and as we walk with Him, we not only become aware of the things in us that are no longer compatible, but we begin to see them differently. We hate them, and we seek to to throw them off, like putting off dirty clothes. So my question for you then is, today, do you have a growing hatred in your life for sin? Do you see what it does to your human relationships and how it destroys them? Do you see how it ruins the intimacy that you could be experiencing with God? And so you seek to put it away. Finally, the last characteristic here is a growing hunger for God's word and presence. I almost separated these out into two different things, but they they kind of feed off one another. We read in verse 2 and 3, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. God's word and God's presence. You can read the Bible without necessarily enjoying God's presence, and you can enjoy the presence of God without having your Bible open. We do that every time we see something that he's made in nature and worship him. But often, God's presence is most found in pondering what he has already said and declared 
to us. They feed one another. Time in his word and time in his presence. Look at the picture that we're given, the illustration we're given regarding his word. Like a newborn baby longing for milk. Now, a newborn baby is many things. Cute, adorable, cuddly, amazing. But self-sufficient is not one of them, right? Some of you guys have babies. You're like, they don't do anything. They eat, they sleep, they poop, and that's about it for a while. Sometimes you get a little coo out of them, but let's be honest, it's not that all, all that impressive. You're like, he hates babies. No, I don't. But the, the, the thing here is that a baby is completely dependent upon their mother's milk to feed and to nourish them. And it says, just as a little infant craves, longs for, needs her mother's milk, so Christians, we are to crave the pure spiritual milk of the gospel, of God's word. And so we have to ask ourselves, is there a growing hunger in me for God's word? to know about him, to learn what is true, to grasp wisdom on what is the good life, to understand my place in the overall story of human history? Or is there a growing hunger in me to find my satisfaction elsewhere and to be shaped by other things? I say this carefully because I think there are times where we do need to sit down and read one or two lines of Scripture and ponder it and think on it. Like that's meditative reading. That's, that can be very worshipful and helpful in our lives. But if you sit down to read God's word and all you can handle is a sentence or two without having your mind wander like crazy, but then find yourself in, a, in another moment able to binge watch a show for seven straight hours, you might have a priority problem. There, there might be the, the flashing dash light saying, check engine soon. Or it would be like going to the doctor for a checkup and recognizing that perhaps your cholesterol is highly elevated. It may not mean imminent disaster, but it means it's something that needs to be addressed. It's something that you need to look into. It's, it's showing you something about the condition of your heart. In Christians that are healthy, there is a, there is a growing hunger, a, a yearning for God's word like a little infant yearns for milk, to know him and to be shaped by him. And so, and so is there a growing hunger in your soul to know more of God and what he's already said? But we don't leave it there. We also see that there needs to be a growing hunger to just be with him, for his presence to know him, to commune with him. He says, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Pastor Mike quoted or read Psalm 34, verse 8, a psalm of David that's being quoted here. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. He's saying that when we experience the presence of God, there is a sweetness, a goodness there. Now, do you have a favorite food? I have a lot of them. Like a good steak, medium rare. Barbecued ribs falling off the bone. Sesame chicken. I mean, come on, who doesn't like some Chinese food from time to time? Fajitas. Oh, amazing. Doritos. And not the, not the nacho cheese kind, the, the purple kind, the, the sweet chili kind. If you haven't had them, they are pretty life-changing, let me tell you. All of those foods, like, no one forces me to eat them. 
It's not like, Kyle, eat your vegetables. In fact, if I go to a restaurant and I see some of those things on the menu, I will intentionally seek them out and order them because they are delicious. I've tasted them. I like them. I crave them. In the same way, when we taste and see that the Lord is good, when we experience his presence and goodness, we seek him out more. We want to spend time with him. There was a 17th century monk, a French monk by the name of Brother Lawrence. He was the cook at a monastery in Paris, France, and he wrote a book titled Practicing the Presence of God. It's a great little book on how to do all kinds of mundane things of life, but do so acknowledging the presence of God in that particular moment. I'd highly recommend it to you, but here's a quote that I think sums it all up. He says, there is no greater lifestyle and no greater happiness than that of having a continual conversation with God. Have you thought about that in your life? You can just, that, that prayer may just be a continual conversation between you and the Lord where the sacred breaks in to the ordinary and the mundane in the most beautiful of ways. I've talked a lot about delighting in the presence of God. But if I'm honest, delighting in the presence of God is a little bit of delight and a little bit of discipline. It's both. It's not one or the other. It's a chicken and egg kind of thing. Or actually, it's a lot like trying to get back in shape. Now, me, like many other people, have been spending a a bit of time at Planet Fitness the last few weeks. I mean, it's January and all. Hopefully, it goes on a little longer. Trying to get back in shape and take care of my body, not because I have delusions of youth, but rather I just want to have a bit more energy and, 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 and steward this thing that God has given me. And here's what I found to be true about working out. The more that I do it, the more that I want to do it. The more that I do it, the more that I find myself enjoying it. The less that I work out, the harder it becomes. And the less that I work out, the less I feel the need, the desire, or the impulse to do it. You guys know what I'm talking about? You all do. But when that happens and I stop working out, inevitably my energy drops, my waistline grows, and it becomes harder and harder to get back in. Time with the Lord is kind of like that. It's kind of like that. Practicing his presence is kind of like that. It is discipline and it is delight. And the more that you discipline yourself, the more delight that you experience. And the more the delight that you experience, the less it feels like discipline. So which one is it that you need to add? Probably for most of us, if it's out of whack, we need to start with discipline. Practicing the presence of God Opening up God's word and disciplining ourselves with like a reading plan or something can feel maybe a bit like eating your vegetables or starting to work out again. And yet when you get that going and you begin to taste and see that the Lord is good, when you begin to see that God actually meets you there in those moments where you actually were just mindless before or where you actually are disciplining yourself to spend time with him or to read his word, there is a delight to it that brings you back for more discipline and delight, resting and striving. 
That's what the gospel life is, resting in what God has done for you as you strive to walk with him, disciplining yourself to make time to spend with him and to practice his presence so that you can delight in him when he's there and when you're there with him. He's always there, just to be clear. So I don't want to overthink this. As we give ourselves a spiritual checkup, I think it's important to ask these five questions. Do I have a growing love for the people of God? Do I have an eternal perspective on this life that factors into my decision-making? Do I have a growing hatred for my sin, seeing it for the counterfeit that it actually is? Do I have a growing hunger for the Word of God? And do I have a growing hunger to experience the presence of God? Now, if one of those hits home, what are you going to do about it? You get the MRI scan back, and there's something there. A treatment plan is needed. Now, I don't want to go too far because I'm not a medical person. I'll probably say something stupid. But you get what I'm saying, right? What do you do if one of those things is like, oh, yeah, that's it. You make a plan. And you discipline yourself until the delight comes. But here's the good news. The good news of the gospel is with the new birth comes a new power. The power of the Holy Spirit to actually do what God is inviting you to do. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead now lives in us if we are in Christ, renewing us, empowering us, changing our heart and our desires and our motives. So I get it. It's hard to love other believers sometimes. But Jesus did it perfectly. So we don't need to be overly discouraged when we fail in the times that we don't. When it's hard to love other believers, remember Jesus' incredible patience with his disciples. Can you imagine heading toward Jerusalem, knowing what's awaiting you there, and listening in on one of your disciples' conversation, and they're arguing about who's the greatest? Imagine how discouraging that would have been three years in. Think about how Jesus has patiently loved you in your worst moments. And consider then how you can extend that same kind of grace and love to those who are hard to love in your life. See, often we expect more out of other people than we do ourselves, don't we? Like, we understand that we're all works in process and that some things uh, take us weeks and months and even years to grow through. Why is it then that we expect others to do it in days? And when they don't, we're ready to condemn them immediately? Why is it that we love when others extend grace and understand that we're works in progress, but then when someone else and their stuff hurts us, it's execute right away? Have you guys thought that perhaps one of the ways that God is shaping and forming the character of Jesus in you is by putting you around all of these other people who are are sinners as well? And as you try to work together and begin rubbing against one another, you see the rough edges begin to kind of smooth off a little bit. That that sounds good in, in picture. That's hard in real life, isn't it? You're like, Kyle, you are hard to bear with. I am sometimes. I really am. But what if that's actually the process that God uses to refine and to transform and to 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 rub down those rough edges? And what if just ejecting from that and going and finding a whole new group of messed up people that we just don't know how messed up they are yet actually hijacks that. That's the word. So, 
I get that it's hard to love other believers sometimes. Jesus has done it perfectly. You're not going to do it perfectly. He has done it in your place, and he gives you a roadmap on how to do it. I get it. It's hard to keep our minds fixed on eternity when there's so many things pressing in on the here and now. But Jesus did. Remember how Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. How did he do that? It was for the joy that was set before him, so that he could have a bride for all eternity. He endured what was hard to gain something that was so much greater. Consider how fleeting and temporary this life is, but how weighty eternity is in comparison. And ask yourself, how did the decision that I'm making today impact my life, not in five minutes, but in 500 years? You going to feel good about it then? I get it. Sin sometimes seems enticing, but look a little harder and remember where it leads. Remember how it leaves you feeling. Remember how it destroys intimacy with God and takes a flamethrower to your relationship. See, sin, if it wasn't any fun, if it wasn't tempting at all, we wouldn't be tempted to do it. It offers us fleeting pleasures and a whole bunch of regret. And in the times you fail, remember Jesus, the one who perfectly resisted the allure of temptation so that, you could, so that he could die in your place and defeat temptation and death once and for all. Imagine the willpower that it would have taken as he hung on the cross with legions of angels at his disposal, ready to engage on his behalf with just a word. And the words that come out of his mouth are, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing as they're spitting on him and mocking him. I get it. It's hard to hunger for the word of God, even more so than food, but sometimes God's word is more important than even food that nourishes our body. Remember the time in the wilderness when after fasting for 70 days and Satan begins tempting him to use his power for his own means, he quotes scripture and says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus, the eternal word of God, overcomes temptation by quoting the word of God. And if Jesus needed God's word in those moments of greatest temptation, how much more do we need it and to discipline ourselves to know what God has already said? Do you hunger for the presence of God and long for it? Seek him out. Linger until he speaks. In the mundane and in the extraordinary, Jesus offers us communion with God. Remember, of all the things that he laid down, this was the hardest for him to lay down intimacy with his father. He laid it down and he was put outside and he was utterly forsaken by the father so that you and I never would be. So that we could be invited in to the triune love of the father, the son, and the spirit. Jesus has done that so that he, and and in doing, has paved the way for intimacy with God. You have access to him. That's good news. So as we close, a growing love for God's people, an eternal perspective on life, a hatred for sin, a growing hunger for God's word and his presence, these are the spiritual checkup indicators that we may need. But we need more than a spiritual checkup, don't we? We need a new heart and new desires. We need a new power at work within us. And in Christ, God delivers in all those accounts. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, for how it provokes us and challenges us and invites us into the good life. God, as we think about eternity, we long to live even some of that now. And so would you meet us here? 
Lord, as we ask ourselves these questions, would you gently and firmly get us healthy? Would you send your Spirit's power to renew and restore and refine us that we might look more and more like Jesus? It's in his name that we pray. Amen.